Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. It was really good, Stuart. <laughs> no one could have done it except for you. Uh, welcome. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, as Thomas said, this is the uh, third Sunday in Advent. Um, I'm really excited. I don't know about you guys, but um, the anticipation towards Christmas is, is really building in our house. Uh, we have three small kids, and we're, you know, we do the, the Advent calendar and you know you get a little sweetie every every four days or so um, um fighting over who's is who and uh, it's good fun um uh, all of those really are the, the point of all of these things are to like in small kind of ordinary ways to uh, enter into that waiting so it's it's really the the whole point of advent isn't it it's the it's the waiting it's the anticipation um uh, of the arrival of jesus so during advent we uh we look forward by looking back, don't we? Um, so we, we enter into that waiting, that anticipation that the, the people of the Old Testament had, waiting. They were promised for generations, for generations, for generations that this Messiah was coming, this King was coming, uh, who, would, who would be born, uh, who would bring in a, a government of peace that's everlasting, that never ends, um, and they're expecting this, they're waiting. So we, we kind of enter in that with them. Uh, we do that all the while looking forward and experiencing that same expectation, that same waiting for that Messiah, Jesus, to come again. Um, and, and just like he f- brought all these promises with him the first time, he's going to do that again uh, when, he, when he comes again. So in, really, in a way, we Christians are always in Advent, aren't we? Like we, we should live with this expectation, this, this, uh, this waiting uh, for him to return. Um, or else you should live that way. Um, but I, I, I really love this time of year because it's, we really just immerse ourselves in that, in that wait, um, anticipate what's, what's to come. I think it's very important. So um, we've been uh, looking every week at, at these traditional themes associated with each week uh, in Advent. So we've been lighting these candles, as you just saw. Um, we, we looked at hope. We looked at peace last week. And this week, we're going to look at joy. Uh, the point of, of what we're doing is really to... to to understand how the Bible interprets or, or defines these words. So uh, the world has a lot to say about what peace looks like or what, what hope looks like, um, a lot to say about what joy may look like. Um, but we're really interested in, in seeing what God thinks about what does hope look like for, for us as Christians, peace and, and joy. Um, I, I will admit this is, it's, it's been a, not the easiest sermon to, to write because there's so much the Bible has to say about joy. It's one of the major themes about the Bible. It runs, runs from the very beginning pages to the very end. Um, you can just kind of flip open and, and teach joy probably from any page. Um, when you have so, much, uh, so many resources, it, it's kind of hard to know where to start or what, what do you cover. Um, so really, we're going to look at main, three main things we want to do today. Is we want to understand why, why joy is so important. So if the Bible has so much to say about it, uh, let's understand why it's so important for us uh, to understand. Um, if it is so important, how do we get it? And then uh, lastly, how do we maintain that joy? Um, can we pray again? Um, Father, we love you. We, we thank you that you have brought us out from, from being strangers in this world. Um, 
We were once uh, uh, aliens, uh, kind of exiles from, from your presence. Uh, but through you, uh, God, through your sending of your son, that you've, you've made a way for us to be close to you. Uh, help us to realize what we're doing right now, God, that we are, we are your people, that we gather together, um, hopefully not out of just, just mere tradition, that, that we, we come to meetings, we, we come into places to, um, to kind of gather together, but we come together as, as a family, uh, as brothers and sisters, um, to gather in your presence. That's really manifested when we, when we gather together. Uh, Spirit, we ask that you'd help us now. Um, we ask that you would open our hearts in ways that, that only you can do. Um, I, I admit that I, um, I don't have the strength, I don't have the power to, uh, to place truths into people's hearts. That, that's your job, Lord. And we ask that you'd do that now. We expect you to do that now. And we place things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, why is understanding joy so important? Um, I think the answer to that question is because the Bible really tells us that it's, it's the reason you were created. Um, so joy is, is what you were created for. Um, I want to start briefly back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Um, it says, Then God said, Let us create man in our image after our likeness. Um, I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses this year. I've thought about it a lot. Um, I love it because this, it shows us, obviously, that we were created by God, um, but also that we were created to be in his image, to be image bearers uh, of God. Um, and all throughout those, uh, those first uh, verses through chapter 1 of Genesis, I've, I've kind of mentioned this a, a couple times before, you see the way that God creates, um, which is by doing what? How does God create? By speaking. He, spe- he speaks words of commands. He says, let there be light, and there's light. Uh, let the waters be gathered up. Let dry land appear. That happens. Uh, let creeping things crawl. Let vegetation sprout up, and, and it happens. Um, all these things come into being simply because God says for them to, to come into being. Um, but when, it com- when it comes to creating humanity, um, he does it differently. He stops speaking words of commands, and he begins to engage in conversation. I think it's really beautiful. Um, it's different than the way he creates everything else. Um, he, he simply could have said, let there be man, and there's man, but he doesn't. He says, let us create man in our image. Um, the first kind of conversational piece that you have in the Bible. Um, I love this because it shows us that God is uh, it's, he's social rather than a solitary being. Um, he, God actually exists in community, um, not in isolation, um, he, so before he created anything, uh, before uh, time and space, uh, God's always existed in perfect community. So we have a Trinitarian God, the, the Bible teaches, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's, he's, he's always been eternally content, um, eternally satisfied, eternally happy within himself. So he, he, he wasn't in need when he created. Um, he, didn't, he didn't create because he was bored or because he was lonely and, or because he was dissatisfied or lacking joy, um, unhappy. Um, Acts 17.25 says, uh, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and, and everything. 
So he didn't create because he, he needed anything. He didn't create because he needed people to worship him. So if God needs anything to satisfy him, then he's no longer God, right? That, that thing that satisfies him would be God. Um, but he doesn't need anything outside of himself to, to satisfy it. He's, he's perfect, we're told. He's all in all. Um, Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, so everything in the world begins to fall apart if God doesn't hold it together. Uh, Colossians 2.3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 of Colossians, that the, the riches of, of all glory is, is in Christ. Um, so he, he, he's always existed perfectly, eternally contently within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally happy, eternally joyful, eternally satisfied. But he says, let us create man in our image after our likeness. Um, us to be, to, be, to be made to be like him, uh, to be in his image means a lot of things, but it, but it means that we were created uh, f- for that as well. We are created to experience what he experiences. We were created to, to be in communion with him, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, he wants us to experience what he experiences. What's he, what, is he, what does God experience? He experiences the glory of himself. That's, that's what he's always experienced, eternally happy, eternally joyful, um, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, the riches of all glory. Uh, he created us to experience him, to experience his glory, to experience his majesty. Um, and not only to just merely uh, observe or, or behold him, but to also in, enjoy his glory, enjoy his majesty like he does, to delight in him. That's why you were created. You were created in his image to be in his presence like he is, to know him, to experience his glory and majesty like he does, and not only to merely observe it, but to respond to it. Okay, we're talking really about worship here, aren't we? Um, and this is what worship is, to, to behold his majesty, to behold his glory, and to ascribe worth to him, to, to respond in worship, to, to, to glorify him. And the way we actually do that is by finding joy in him, by, by, by delighting in him, by enjoying him. Um, most of you might know the Westminster Catechism. My mom taught us this growing up. Question one is, um, what's man's chief end? Okay, Jeff's smiling. He's taught this. Um, man's chief end is to do what? To, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, man's chief end is to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to have joy in him, to, to delight in him forever. This is why joy is so important, is because it's what you were made for. It's your purpose in life. You're created in his image to experience what he experiences, i.e., the glory and the majesty of himself, and to, to respond to that uh, by, by enjoying him. Uh, that's, this is worship, by, by responding to his glory, by responding to his worship, by, by, finding, by delighting in him, by ascribing worth to him, to find our joy in him, to be satisfied by him alone. It's beautiful, isn't it? You created this, like, he's, why would he do this for us? But, here's, here's, here's the, big, the big question. Um, you, you might be sitting here thinking, yes, you're describing something beautiful. Uh, God is full of glory, and he, he, he enjoys that glory, uh, and he creates men to experience that as well, to enjoy that as well. 
to, to ascribe worth to that as well. Um, but it doesn't necessarily line up with the human experience, does it? There, there's something inside of you, a little alarm maybe going off, that's saying you're describing something beautiful, this joyful purpose, but it doesn't describe the reality of the world we live in. Um, delight, satisfaction, happiness, joy, these aren't descriptions of, of the, the normal human experience. Uh, the human story is not one of, of, of a joy fest, is it? Uh, in fact, the biblical story and, and our experience um, shows us that we live in a world that's actually been corrupted from, from what you've actually just, uh, what I've described. So we live in a world that's marked by, by death and it's marked by loss. It's marked by uh, striving, by, by dissatisfaction, not satisfaction. Um, so just read the news, flick through your Twitter feed. We, we live in a world that, it's not very joyful. We live in a world that's actually quite miserable, which is the opposite of joy. Uh, God created the world to, to exist in a certain way, to operate in a certain way, but something has gone terribly wrong, hasn't it? Um, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Lord, could you pass me my wee glass of water there? Romans 1, 20, verses 21. We'll start there. So uh, we were created to worship God, to delight in him, to enjoy in him. And, but I want you to see here how Paul, he shows us how, that, how our worship has been skewed once sin entered the world. So verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So they knew him. Okay, we're, think about that, that, that joyful purpose that you were created for. Okay, created to, uh, to know him, to be in relationship with him. Okay, so for, all, for although they knew him, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23 says, And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and, and animals and creeping things. Skip over to verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore or who should be praised forevermore. So Paul says that once, once sin entered the world, we started to ascribe worth to things other than God. Um, so the, this is really the, the root sin in, in our lives. The root sin in, in Genesis 3 is, is the failure to value God uh, above all things so that he's not praised and, and honored as he should be. So again, look at verse 23. They exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God. This is what you were created to experience this is what you're created to enjoy and to ascribe worth to. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, for mere creaturely things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What's the truth about God? That, that he's the glorious one. That he's the source of all, of all true and lasting joy. Okay? In him are the, are the riches of all glory. Okay? Where we find eternal satisfaction. We exchanged that for 
uh, we exchanged that and, and actually started to, to search for joy in, in the creature, in, in creation, rather than the creator. What's the root sin in all of our lives? It's, it's misplaced worship. It's a misplaced search for joy. Why? We're miserable because we've misplaced our search for joy. Uh, but here's the beauty of Advent. The beauty of, uh, the, the beauty of Christmas is that Jesus came to restore our joy. Jesus came to, to, to put our joy in, back into its proper place. Um, you don't have to turn there, but look at um, Isaiah 61. I have this on the screen, I believe. And um, this is what the Messiah has come to do. Okay, this is what, what that they were waiting for. This is expecting him to do this. It says, uh, the Lord anointed him to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. He came to, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. He came to, uh, to bring the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the, the, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why? Why all of these things? Why the, the beautiful headdress instead of ashes? Why, why the, the, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit? Why, why the oil of gladness, of, of joy instead of mourning? It says there, it says, so that he may be glorified. Isn't that amazing? He, he comes to, to restore our joy he comes to, to reorder our affections onto the proper object, which is God himself. Why does he do that? So that we can fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to glorify him by finding our, our joy in him. Um, turn over to the book of Philippians. This is what will be uh, pretty much for the rest of time. Um, the book of Philippians is one of Paul's more encouraging letters. Um, he, he read it, and there's this. He loves his brothers and sisters that he's that he's writing to. He's telling them to rejoice, um, and, and it's ab- absolutely littered with this kind of theme of joy. Um, look at chapter three in Philippians, verse seven and eight. So, Paul showed us in Romans one why this God glorifying joy is not the normal human experience. Okay, he says that we've misplaced our worship, that we've gone searching for joy in all the wrong places. And he says here in, in, in chapter three, verse seven, we see how he corrects that mistake, how he corrects his thinking in this. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. He says, he says all these wonderful things that I've accomplished in my life, all these things that the world tells us should bring satisfaction, should bring happiness and joy, I actually count these things as dung, he says, in order that I might gain Christ. You see that Paul's highest prize in life is getting Jesus. 
That's, that's all he wants in life. And he understands that we've misplaced our, our worship. Okay, we've, we've been searching for joy in all the wrong places. And he says all these things in life are worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And he says Jesus is the one I, I delight in. He's the one where I find my joy. Knowing him and, and gaining him is better than anything the world has to offer. And look at verse 20 in chapter 1. It's kind of proof he actually believes this. In verse 20, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope. This is the thing I want most in life, that I will uh, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored or, or magnified in my body, that Christ is going to be glorified in me, whether by life or by death. For, for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two, and my desire is actually to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because it's far better. Can we just be honest and say, this is ridiculous, <laughs> like in, in human terms, um, it's, it's absurd. Like, um, Thomas, would you rather uh, live or die? You would rather live. Me too. I've, I've, I love my family. I love my job. Um, I, I love my life. Um, I, I, I imagine if I'd asked any of you, would you rather live or die, you'd say, I want to live. But, but not for Paul. Um, he says, my eager expectation, the thing I want most, is, is for Christ to be magnified in my body, for me to glorify him, this original purpose I was created for, he says, whether I live or die, okay? And, and actually, to die is actually the better of the two options. For Paul, experiencing death is actually gain because gaining Christ is more satisfying than anything the world has to offer. All the, thing the, all the things the world has to offer, they, they pale in comparison, he says, to knowing Jesus. They're, they're rubbish, he says, compared to knowing him. The reason is because nothing satisfies like he does. This is uh, John Piper's mantra in life. is God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. That we, we glorify God the most, okay? That, that original mandate that we were created for, we glorify him the most when, when, when we find our joy in him, when he is our, our satisfaction, for Paul, uh, knowing Christ is the ultimate joy. It's, it's, it's the ultimate satisfaction. He, he, he gets it. And so for, for Christians, um, we should, like, like Paul, we don't fear death. And de- death for Christians is actually gain, okay? It, it's gain because we get to be in the presence of Jesus, right? And that means Whatever gets me more of him is, is the good option. It's the better option. If God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, it means that joy should be our, our goal in life. It's the thing we're, we're, we're going after in life. And do you see how, how, how for Paul, joy is not optional, it's actually a mandate. Um, so he says it in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says it in, in chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, this, 
this, this, this command, rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. In everything, in any circumstances, at any time, rejoice in the Lord. Have joy in all things at all times. Joy is not optional. It's not icing on the cake. It's not when things start to line up, then we start to experience joy. Christian joy is not hinged on circumstances. Um, Christian joy actually can be paired with affliction. It actually can be, can be paired with sorrow and lament and loss. Um, do you see how this is opposite from the way the world interprets joy? Like for, for the world, when things start to get bad, your joy starts to dissipate as well. When you, when you, when you get sick... When the cancer grows, the joy decreases as well. Christian joy doesn't operate like that, though. It's paired with with sorrow. It's paired with sickness. That's really the beauty of the the setting of Paul's letter to the Philippians, isn't it? He's writing to his brothers and sisters. He's encouraging them. He's telling them to rejoice always like he does. But, But where is he writing to them from? prison. He's, he's, Paul's in shackles when he writes this. He's uh, he, in verse 17 of chapter two, chapter 2, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he says, even if I'm to die here, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He's writing from prison. He's, he's in shackles, maybe about to die. And he's telling them to be glad, to rejoice like he does. What's that about? How, how can he do that? It's because joy is his highest calling in life. If joy is our highest calling, if it is our purpose, if it's what we were created for, then how do you, how do, you do that while, while living in such a dark and miserable world that we do live in? And what, what does it look like to actually get that joy? And what does it look like to maintain that joy while living in the midst of a world that's, that's miserable? How do you get this joy? Um, uh, quickly turn to John 15, verse 7. And Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He's um, preparing them for him leaving this world. Um, so he's leaving them behind. He's, he's uh, going to the Father. Uh, they're going to stay, be his disciples in, a, in the midst of a dark and miserable world. Uh, verse 7, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So you should have an alarm going off, okay? Ding, 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 ding. We're, 
we're back to the start, aren't we? And this is your purpose that he's talking about again. Okay, verse 8 says, by this my, glorify, my father is glorified. Okay, glorifying God. That's, that's my purpose, okay? I'm, uh, you have my attention, Jesus, I'm listening. How do, I do, how do I glorify God? He says, by bearing much fruit. How do we do that? Jesus says, by abiding in me. Abide in my love. Let my words abide in you. Keep my commandments. Follow my way of life. When you obey me, you're showing me that you love me. You're abiding in my love. He says, apart from me, you you can do nothing. You you can't bear fruit. You you can't experience joy when you're separated from me. This, This gift of the Spirit, this Galatians 5 fruit of the Spirit, which which is joy, as well as uh, other things. Jesus says this, this fruit, um, uh, you, you, you'll bear it when you remain in me, by abiding in me, by, by being with me. He uses this analogy of him being the root and we're the branch and, and the power flows through, through the root to the branch. It's by being, staying connected with him, by remaining in him, that we start to bear that fruit. You ever notice how Jesus is all about glorifying the Father? Um, read through the Gospels sometimes and look out for that. Uh, Jesus is always, I want to be with the Father. I, I want to glorify my Father. He goes to, to spend time with the Father. He always wants to please the Father. He's all about obeying the Father, abiding in the Father's love. Where is Jesus' joy? It's in the Father. It's in that relationship that he has with the, with the Father. And, and I think in, in, in that that passage in John, Jesus is reminding us that we were created for that as well, that we were created for that relationship that he experiences, to, to marvel at that relationship, to uh, the, the glory of the immortal God that we were created to experience and delight in. That's what we were created for, to, to enjoy him, to worship him. And Jesus says, abide in me, trust me, keep my commands. By doing that, you will glorify the Father. And what does he say in verse 11? I've spoken these things that my joy might be in you, and that your joy might be full. You see how it's all about, his, all about glorifying the Father, but it's also about our joy, how, how intertwined those two things are? How do you get this everlasting joy? Be with Jesus. Abide in him. Jesus actually is the one who gives us our joy. He places it in us when we remain with him. How do you maintain the joy in such a dark world? And you can, you can argue to continue to remain with Jesus, okay, which is true. Do that. that, that yes, the answer is, is correct. Continue to remain with him. Uh, but turn back to, to Philippians. I want to show you uh, there's two important threads that run throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians. Two things he, he constantly has on his mind that help him to, to live with joy in the midst of such a miserable world. Um, for Paul, remember, joy is not based on circumstances. Um, look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He's telling them to rejoice in all times. Um, Chapter 2, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul's, 
Paul's telling us, don't grumble, don't, don't murmur in, in, in a setting where there is crookedness and darkness and evil. And if you're like me, I can think of a dozen circumstances just in this week where it feels right and it feels natural to complain, to grumble. Um, and Paul says, don't do it. Don't go there. Do you see how he's giving, uh, the Bible has these like reverse commands. Don't do this. Okay, well, what do I do? Um, what's, what's the opposite of grumbling? What did you say? Rejoicing, contentment, having peace, having joy. It's a reverse command to do all things with joy. Even in circumstances, circumstances where it's most natural to grumble. Look at chapter 4, verse 10 and 13, 10 through 13. He shows how he actually does this. Verse 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Verse 11 says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation... Whether I'm in, I'm in prison or I'm free, I've learned to be content, to not grumble, to not complain, but to, to be content, have joy, have peace. Verse 12, I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, and every, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the famous passage that all the sports stars like, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, listen, you can hunger, you can be abased, you can, you can go without. And according to, to remember chapter 1, verse 21, he'd probably say you can die with content, with peace, with joy. How? What's the key? What's, what's the secret, he says? Okay, he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Piper points out that the, the key, the, the secret that Paul is talking about is these two things, this, these two things that constantly run throughout this, this passage, this, this book. And that is the, the supremacy of the sovereignty of Christ and the supremacy of the sweetness of Christ. Both these things just absolutely permeate this book. Um, Paul can have joy in any circumstance, whether he's hungry or he has plenty, whether he has need or abundance, because he has faith that God is sovereign in all things. I always give you homework when I preach, but read through the book of Philippians like throughout this week, four chapters. You can do it in like 10, 15 minutes. Read through it and look for these things all throughout this letter. Um, we'll do it real quick. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay? He who, who began the good work in you, God did. And it's him who will, who will bring that, uh, that completion uh, to the day of Christ. It shows us that, that God is sovereign in our perseverance. If we're going to make it to the end, it will be because he causes us to make it to the end. Okay? I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me because I know how, how rubbish I am 
at, at, at being faithful to him. Every day, I forget, but he's, he's sovereign over me, making it to the end. That should give you great joy. Um, chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what's happened to him? He's in prison. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's saying, my imprisonment, it's actually resulted in, in, in all of Caesar's household knowing uh, that I am in jail uh, for the sake of Christ. He, he goes on to talk about um, even, even uh, the brothers and sisters in the area are more bold because he's in, in, in prison. He's saying, God has actually ruled sovereignly in me being here, and he's, he's turned my imprisonment, something that, that seems uh, suffering, he's turned it for his glory and for my joy. Isn't that incredible? Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. This one's hard. This is one of those, one of those truths that, that either softens your heart or it can make you a little bit hard, if I'm honest. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul's saying that there are two gifts. The gift of faith, of believing, and also the gift of suffering. God is is sovereign over when he gives faith and even when he allows suffering to happen. Um, I don't know about you, but I I think the most terrifying thought in life is if God is not sovereign, if he's not in control over my suffering. If he's not in control of that, anyone love chaos? Anyone love uncertainty? Not me. But if he's in control of that and he's working it towards his glory and for my joy in the end, I can have joy in the midst of suffering. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. We await a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. God is, God is uh, in Christ is sovereign over all things, even transforming our sickly bodies to be like his glorious body someday. That's good news. The supremacy of, uh, supremacy of the sovereignty of God in Christ is, is just everywhere in this letter. And it's, a, it's an essential part of this secret that en- enables you to enjoy in, in every circumstance, whether you're hungry or whether you have plenty, whether you're in chains or whether you're free. Because you know that he's in charge of every circumstance and he's going to cause every circumstance to turn for his glory and for my good and for my joy. And look at chapter four, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to the, his riches and glory in Christ. That's good news. What about the sweetness of Christ? So while, you're, while we're, we have this waiting, while we're watching, while we're waiting for God in his sovereignty to turn everything miserable right now for good, is there any present consolation? 
Is there any present sweetness while we wait for him to do that? Paul would say, absolutely. Look again at at verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, knowing Christ right now, experiencing fellowship with him right now is is more precious, it's more satisfying, it's sweeter than anything the world can offer. We're not just waiting uh, to see how the circumstances are going to turn out when he turns everything for good. We're actually, we can actually experience the sweetness of Christ right now in the moment of suffering, in the moment when things are great or bad. So what's the secret? I've, I've learned the secret of being abased and hungering, of going without. I've learned the secret of abundance and prosperity. The secret is, is faith in, in God's sovereignty, that he's in control of everything, that he's working it out for his glory and for our joy. And faith in the sweetness of knowing Jesus right now, wherever you are. So when we, when we have little, when we have lost much, Christ comes and he reveals himself as, as more valuable than what we've lost. When you're in bed, when you are sick, Christ comes and he says, I'm more valuable than your, than your health. Experience the sweetness right now. And when we have much, when we are overflowing in abundance, Christ comes and he shows that he's far superior than anything we can have. The secret of joy in the hardest of times in this book is the supremacy of the sovereignty of Christ and the supremacy of the sweetness of knowing Jesus. And for Paul, knowing Jesus is his highest joy. And it's better, it's more satisfying than anything the world can offer you and anything the world can seemingly take away from you. And why is understanding biblical joy so important? It's because it's your purpose in life. You were created to be in communion with him. You were created to experience what he's always experienced, his glory, his majesty. Not only to just behold that, but to enjoy it. To, to find your joy in it. Don't find your joy. Listen, I love Christmas time. Lucas could tell you stories of me as a kid. I used to like sleep under the Christmas tree. Love it. Anything, anything, anything that Christmas time offers, give it to me. I want it. But if, if these things, and that's okay. All throughout the Bible, you see that the things that God created are to give us joy as well. But if they don't ultimately lead you to, to getting more of him, if, if the satisfaction of the joy ends in that thing, then it's worthless. It's, 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 it's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Um, let's stand. We're going to pray and we're going to finish by partaking in the meal that we always partake in. Let's stand. I always say this, um, um, so 
what we do at the end of every gathering that we have is we, we participate in the Lord's Supper. So we, um, we, again, we look forward by looking back, by remembering. The only reason we have hope, the only reason we have peace, we have joy, is because of what he's done for us. The only reason you're able to, to, to be here is because he's brought you here. So we remember what he's done. We, we break this, be, this bread to remind us that his body was broken for us. We dip it in the wine to, to, rem, to remember that his blood was shed for us. And it's, it's through what he did on the cross that he, he makes peace available to you, that he makes joy possible for you, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst when things are really great. Um, uh, Hebrews 12, 2 shows that Jesus is even in our, our example in this. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for, for joy's sake. Isn't that amazing? Um, Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that um, through what you've done on the cross, that you came to, to, to be our sacrifice once and for all, That because your blood uh, covers us, that, that, that uh, you have taken on uh, the, wrath, the wrath that we were due, and you give us the, the righteousness, you give us the peace that is yours, and it becomes ours. We thank you, Lord, that, that through you we can have joy. We thank you that you give us joy. Lord, show us how to, to remain in your love together, how to abide in your love so that we can bear fruit, that we can have more joy. And Lord, help us to remember that in any and all circumstances that you are in control, that you are working all things together for our good, for our joy, and for your glorification. Help us to, 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 to be how we, how we were meant to be, to experience you, to, to behold your glory, to behold your, your majesty, the riches of all glory, and to find our joy in you, Jesus, not in the things of the world. May that be on our mind, Lord, as we, as we creep closer to Christmas, as we have carol services, as we have dinners with family, a nice bottle of wine. Lord, all these things are meant to point towards you. Open our eyes, God. Help us to see um, what you've done for us and the joy that we have in you. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.